several people in several age groups. And uh, I just want you to know that in no way is a sermon series intended to be an attack or a, um, an affront to anyone who may or may not attend church here. Um, it is intended to be an honest and biblical view of familiar questions that often arise in our culture. And the question that comes up so often in our culture, is that really in the Bible? Did God really say that? And uh, it's so easy to get caught up in what our opinion is, what our preferences are, what we believe to be a moral absolute or the lack thereof. And uh, so it's always best, and it's always prudent, and it's the only really uh, honest way to observe these kinds of questions is to see what God's Word has to say about it. And so uh, we've looked at some interesting subject matter so far, and so this morning's message is, what does the Bible say about marriage, homosexuality, and sexual relationships outside of marriage? And so as we get started this morning, if you would, turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we're going to look at several verses. We're going to look at the start of marriage, we're going to look at the end of marriage, and we're going to look at the sacredness of marriage. And then we'll move into the other two areas that we're going to discuss this morning. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for once again for the opportunity to be here. And Lord, for a few moments this morning, I pray, God, that you would guide my thoughts and my words, that they might be your thoughts, your words. And I pray, God, that we would honestly look at these questions from a biblical viewpoint. Lord, some of these questions, we've solidified them in our mind what the answers are to be. Others we kind of wavered on because of emotional ties that we may have to someone who is involved in one of these areas. But God, I pray that it would not be our emotions, that it would not be our opinions, that it would not be our preferences that guide our solutions, that the, our, our, our answers to these issues in our, in our culture. So God, I pray that you would speak in and through your word this morning that we might heed its word, that we might apply it to our hearts and our lives, that we might pray towards the end of implementing these truths into our daily living. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory for how you see fit to work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So marriage, I have to admit, it's a wonderful, awesome thing. I had no idea as I was thinking about this in my own life this week. I can remember going through college, and I remember, and i got to tell a little bit of this story. Uh, I remember walking on my college campus for the very first time, and I can remember seeing Don Swindle, who was also on the campus. And I love the old way that teachers used to, uh, you know, kind of get to know their students. So, so for, so for the, like the first uh, semester of college, uh, we had such a huge freshman class. Remember, this is a Bible college. Our freshman class was like over 280 students that first time for the first time in their history. And uh, so the professor put everybody in alphabetical order. So for like four of my classes, I sat right behind Don Swindle. S-W-T-O. It worked out marvelously. And uh, so I didn't know who she was. She didn't know who I was. She really was, you know, buffaloed by who she thought I was and so forth. But, you know, sitting right behind her, you know, I remember calling home to my mother. This is the truth. I picked up the phone. I said, Mom, I found the girl I'm going to marry. And there was silence on the other end for just a moment. So how are your classes going? 
quickly averted from the subject at hand. And I said, Mom, I found the girl I was going to marry. Uh, wait a minute. You promised me that you would finish through all four years of Bible college before you start getting married. And I said, Mom, I'm going to finish through four years of Bible college. Don't worry. I said, I'm not getting married until I'm done with college. Don't worry. But I found the girl I'm going to marry. It's really simple. I've got to give you these five things. Number one, I wanted somebody who loved God. That's a first and foremost, right? Right? Love God. Somebody who loved their dad. I figured if they loved their dad, they would transfer that love to me. She did. Number three, she had to love kids. And number four, because I was not sure what God was going to have me to do, but I knew I was called to full-time ministry, they had to be musical. Just a given. Every pastor has to marry somebody that's musical, right? I mean, that's, that was the mindset in those days. And number five, she had to be Southern. My dad instilled that in me. That's his fault. Fit the bill completely. I mean, good. And I couldn't get any more perfect than those five important biblical ingredients. <laughs> Just kidding. But I've called home and said, man, I found the girl I'm going to marry. Later on that year, I called my mom and said, mom, I'm dating that girl I said I was going to marry. How are your classes coming? <laughs> she really did not want to talk about the subject at hand. So I dated her all my freshman year, and then, you know, i got to be honest, she dumped me for a jerk from Bob Jones. So, just saying. Um, no. So, sophomore year, nothing. Junior year, nothing. Towards the end of my junior year, I found out that this guy dumped her, and I'm like, yes, there is a God. <laughs> Keep in mind, I did not date anyone in between. I, I held out because I knew what God, what God had. You know, he said convince her. So, uh, you know, later on, towards the end of my junior year, I called my mom up and said, Mom, remember that girl I said I was going to marry my freshman year? Ha, <laughs> I'm dating her again. What? <laughs> right. So, there, you know, God, God works in mysterious ways. And we got engaged, got married. But here's one point. You know, it's amazing how God puts these things together. I thought I knew what love was when I got married. Boy, was I wrong. It's amazing to me that over these... 21 years of marriage and a couple years before that how marriage and our definition of marriage or not the definition but marriage and how it's applied in our lives changes what I thought was love then was nothing compared to what it is today would you agree those of you who have been married for some period of time love just grows sweeter and deeper as the years go by and the emotions I love what God has done through marriage and our children. Um, God is just a miraculous God. And He's a God of grace and mercy too. Because if I got what I deserved in my early years of marriage, and even probably late if she's being honest, man, I, deserve, I don't deserve what, I got, what God has given to me. I don't deserve her. But God is a gracious God. He's a merciful God. But here's the thing. Marriage, according to Scripture is wonderful. What does God's Word say about marriage? Well, let's look at the start of marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, it is, good, it is not good for the man to be alone. And every man says, Amen. It's not good, because left to ourselves, man, we don't know what we're doing half the time. And even though Oliver has an idea that Dad can't cook, Dad can cook. So... It is not good for man to be alone. He says, I will make a helper as his complement. 
And then it says down at the middle of verse 20, but, the man, but for the man no helper was found as his complement. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at least is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. I want you to see a couple of things concerning the start of this relationship. God said it was not good for man to be alone. And the first thing I want you to see is that they complement each other. God designed it to be that way. And I'm so thankful that He did. I had no idea that when God put our family together, that God was giving me somebody that would help me, that would encourage me, that would compliment me, that would take the things that I would not be good at and, and help fulfill those things, especially in the area of ministry. And, and in the ministry of our own family. God knew exactly what He was doing in marriage. He said it is not good for man to be alone. And I agree with that. When God allowed us to come together, I rejoiced in that. Because it was of God. And He says I will make a helper as His compliment. She compliments me in so many ways. And guys, I tell you, there's been a thousand times in our 21 years of marriage... That I said, I already know that, honey. I've already done that. But I'm reminding you because I know that one time you get up in front of everybody, you're going to forget this and this. And she's right. I hate admitting that, but she's right. No, I don't hate admitting it because she's awesome. She compliments. And that's what it's supposed to do. This is why a man leaves his father and mother. And let me just say this over and over as we're going to get into this next area of homosexuality. Nowhere in Scripture do you see that God prepared another man for a man. That's just not in Scripture. Nowhere do you see that God prepared a woman for a woman. He said, I am preparing you, a man and a woman, that they would complement each other. And they become one flesh. Not only do they complement each other, they have roles. And when we fulfill our God-given roles, the marriage functions correctly. And let me just say, God has to be at the center of that. Because apart from God, we are selfish, selfish, selfish. It's a big enough struggle with God, but apart from Him, it is incredibly more selfish. Because all we do is want to help ourselves, fulfill our own uh, gratification, to fulfill our own desires. So we see that God had designed it in such a way that men and women both have roles. If you would look at Ephesians chapter 5. And as you're turning there, uh, I can't tell you how many times over the years, I can't, I've lost count of how many wedding ceremonies I've performed um, over the last 21 years. But it's amazing that I am a stickler for a couple things in vows. I, I will allow the, the couples to come up with their own vows. I don't, I don't mind that. But I'm a stickler for one thing. Scripturally, God calls a woman to what? Submit. Obey. God calls men to do what? What? Love. As Christ loved, yes. That too. But God is very clear on these roles. So any type of vows that do not include these, I don't like. Because they're unscriptural. So the first thing that we see in these roles is that 
says, verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. As to the Lord? That seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? I mean, that doesn't sound like something that's fair. That doesn't sound like something that is easy. According to our, script, our, our culture that we live in, we want something that's fair. We want something that you know, shares the responsibilities. We want something that you know, it all works out for both our goods. But God is very clear here. The woman was designed to not only compliment her husband, but her role is to submit. Now, guys, this puts an extra amount of responsibility on your head, your hands. If you are asking her to submit to what you are doing as a leader of your home, you better make sure that you're doing what God asked you to do. Over the years, my wife has submitted in every area. As we have surrendered to God to be in full-time ministry, that sometimes means that God closes one door of ministry, opens up another door of ministry, which sometimes requires us to move. My wife said to me years ago, she said, you know I will surrender to go anywhere that you feel God is calling us to go. No question. And she has. She said, but you better make sure it's what God is telling us to do. That puts the responsibility on me as the leader to make sure that if she is going to submit to what I'm asking her to do, I better make sure I'm doing what God asked me to do. That's my responsibility before God. So it goes on here, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. God designed it that way. If you don't like it, too bad. Get in an argument with God. But this is the, the model that God has given to us. And then he says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. So, guys... If the woman is to submit to you as to the Lord, as, to the, as, the, as, as the church would to God, you better make sure that you are being the spiritual leader. That's a little more difficult, isn't it, guys? Because we're selfish. I don't really want to take the time to do that. It's not my responsibility. Yes, it is, and it's a struggle at times. But we must work towards that. God's Word is clear. And in Colossians chapter 3, just over a couple pages to the right here, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 3, and verse 18, it says, Wives, be submissive to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. As is fitting in the Lord. So really, as we look at this, the woman is designed to compliment or help her husband, and she is called to submit and respect. Those are the only two things. Nowhere in Scripture have I found that is that God has called a woman to love her husband. Isn't that amazing? That's your job, men. We'll see that in just a moment. So, a woman is to submit and respect. Now here's something interesting here. Take your Bibles and turn over to 1 Peter just for a moment. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, in the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some obey the Christian message, they may be won over without a message by the way their wives live. Now stop right there. Well, my spouse is not saved. My, my, my spouse doesn't love me. 
So therefore, I'm exempt from submitting and obeying and respecting my husband. Are you? Not according to God's Word. It says, For they may be won over without a message by the way their wives live. He says, you don't even have to open your mouth. And so often when I hear these kinds of situations in a counseling session or whatever, well, my husband's not walking with God. So don't beat him over the head with the gospel. Live it out. Because that's what God has called us to do. It says, and when they observe your pure, reverent lives, your beauty should not... And then go on on to verse 5. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also what? beautified themselves in this way, what's the next word? Submitting to their own husbands. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also beautified themselves. It was a beautiful thing to submit. That's where their beauty was. And submitting to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you have become her children when, they, when you do what is good and not, are not frightened by anything alarming. So their beauty was in their submission. So, well, Pastor, you don't know my husband. No, I don't. But here's what I do know according to God's Word. I do know this. Everyone is accountable to God for their own actions and reactions. Every one of us are accountable to God for our own actions and reactions. So what God has called me to do is fulfill the role that He gave me in submitting and respecting my husband as a woman. We'll say, well guys, what's my role? I'm glad you asked. Once again, Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 25 says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her, to make her holy, cleansing her with a washing of water by the Word. So here's the first thing, men. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. We talked about this last Thursday night in men's Bible study. Let me just give you a couple of things that came up in our discussion. How did Christ love the church? Well, first of all, He loved the church sacrificially. He gave everything. He sacrificed His blood. He sacrificed the splendor of heaven to come down to the earth. He gave up everything to come to earth to get to die on a cross. He loved sacrificially. Can I just say this for those of you who might be in this ballpark? We talked about this as well. When I love my wife as Christ loved the church, and sacrificially, this, this picture of sacrifice comes into the marriage, it's not her stuff and my stuff. It's our stuff. It's not her money from her job and his money from his job. It's our money doing it together. I can't tell you how many times over the last 20 years where somebody has come into my office and said, I don't even know what my husband makes. He won't tell me. Can I just say that? You are setting yourself up for a huge fall. It's amazing over the last couple of weeks, all the different people who have come out who had accounts on Ashley Madison. And if you don't know what that is, good for you. But those men who had accounts on Ashley Madison, they would have never had those accounts if their wife had access to the bank accounts. There needs to be an open transparency and accountability financially between husband and wife. My wife knows what I make. 
course, all you do too. Uh, there, is, there is no secrets within our marriage when it comes to finances or anything else. It's not her money and my money. It's our money. You say, well, my wife doesn't have a job. Really? Who takes care of the house? Who takes care of the children? Who provides for the meals? Who puts them all together? Your wife has a job whether she works outside the home or not. It's not his and hers. It's ours. And without it, it creates a whole ton of problems within the marriage. And I've seen it over and over and over again in in the years. Husbands, love. Not just sacrificially, but unconditionally. Do you love unconditionally? I told the guys the other night a story about a friend of mine who over the years put an extreme amount of pressure on his wife to lose weight. And he would say to her, if you'll lose the weight, I'll send you to a trip to Hawaii so you can visit all your friends. Well, wow, that's quite a motivation. So she went out, lost 50 pounds. He went over to, went to Hawaii, enjoyed the trip, came back and over the next year and a half put the 50 pounds back on. And the pressure and the pressure and the pressure and the pressure. So she went and had gastric bypass. And then all of a sudden she's skinny as a toothpick and looks absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. But the problem with it was that not only did her husband notice, so did about 25 other men. And wow, this attention is awesome. And all of a sudden, I see, you know, she said, skip that. I'm tired of being abused there. I'm tired of being slapped down. I'm tired of being pressured. These guys are awesome. And there she went. I wonder, the unconditional love, was it worth it? If I remember right, within the vows of my marriage ceremony, I said, in sickness and in health, in wealth or in poverty, not just when you have a physique, not just before you gain the weight after you have the children, unconditional love. That's how Christ loved the church, unconditionally. He doesn't just love you when you are (coughs) walking in perfect obedience, because that's a struggle. Well, today God loves me because I was obedient. Well, you know, I had some wrong thoughts today, so God doesn't love me. He loves us unconditionally. Husbands, you're to love unconditionally. We could talk some more, but willingly, constantly, completely. Love. Verse 28, he says this, In the same way husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Guys, do you enjoy taking a shower? Take care of yourself, don't you? I mean, you put on clean clothes so you look good. You comb your hair, put on the deodorant. I mean, you take care of yourself just so you look good, feel good, am good. Because you love yourself. Eat when you want to eat. Drink when you want to drink. Go where you want to go. Because I'm here to take care of myself and to enjoy my life. In those same ways, you have to love your wife. I find this amazing because this is not easy sometimes. I've joked about it with the guys. You know, this, this comes out in our house sometimes. You're both laying in bed. You're both tired, but the light is still on. Who's getting up? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. You're laying there. It's like, I'm so tired. I don't want to get up. I'm, I'm snuggled in here. I'm comfortable, but the light is still on. Who's getting up? I look at her and I was like, you just turned it on, shut it off. No, no. no. Or how about this one? 
The dog's by the door barking. Who's going to get up? Yeah. We are selfish, guys. I'm telling you. So are you. We're selfish. And we tend not to love our wives in that way, as we love our own selves. Verse 29 says, For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it. And just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of His body. And then it goes on to say, verse 31, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So he says this mystery is profound, and it is a mystery. You take two selfish people, put them together, and they become one and begin to serve one another. He says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. You say, well, pastor, you don't know my wife. She's selfish. You know my wife, she withholds from me. You know my wife, she spends credit cards. You don't know my wife. No, I don't. But I do know this. <coughs> Everyone is accountable to God for their own actions and reactions. You will not stand before God for your wife's actions. She'll stand before God. But you will stand before God for how you respond to what you do. I can't control the circumstances of life. But I can and must control how I respond to them. And I will stand before God for how I respond for my actions. But I also believe this. Actions are reciprocal. I truly believe with all my heart, my wife, correct me if I'm wrong, if I love my wife as I am called to love my wife, she has no problem submitting to me. On the other hand, men, don't expect your wife to respond in lovey-dovey, oh, I just want to lift you up and obey and submit and follow you with all my heart when you don't love her. But when I love her as I ought, she has no problem. And when she doesn't, that's my fault. Most of the time, it's our own fault. We see that the start of marriage, God gave women to compliment the men, and He gave them roles. Wives, respect and submit. Men, love as Christ loved. Can I just say this? Love is a decision that results in an action that doesn't expect anything in return. Love is a decision. It goes beyond emotions, though emotions are there. But because I love my wife, it results in an action. See, act, words without action is just words. Actions speak louder than words. So I love my wife because I love her produces an action and whether or not she responds according to that is not my fault. It's not my problem. It's hers. Because I'm not expecting anything in return. And can I just say this? Most of the divorces that I've been acquainted with over the last 20 years, very rarely do they have anything to do with an affair. Very rarely do they have anything to do with... Um, a biblical circumstance. Most of them have been because of finances. Well, we just don't love each other anymore. 
They fell out of love. If God is at the center, you should be able to work through any problem that arises. If God's not there, good luck. Because that's all you have. You need God at the center. So that's the start of marriage in Genesis 2, but what's the end of marriage? Let's look at one verse in Matthew, chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 6. Actually, let's look at verse 4. It says, Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. (coughs) So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. When it comes down to the vows that we encourage the wedding couple to make in the presence of God and all these witnesses, we often close those vows with, until death us do part. Why is that? Because God says what man has put together, or what God has put together, no man shall separate. So it is only through death that God intends for a marriage to be separated. That's the end. God's design was that death be the only thing to separate a husband and wife. And we realize that there are circumstances that sometimes come into a marriage relationship. In Romans chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Since I am speaking to those who understand law, brothers, are you unaware that the law has authority over someone as long as he lives? For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding the husband. Death separates and breaks the vow. It's an amazing thing, and I'll talk about this at the very end. But in our culture, this has been replaced with a vow being replaced with a contract. You see, marriage is not a contract, it's a vow. And God's Word says over and over, throughout the Old Testament especially, that it's better not to vow a vow than to vow a vow vow before God and break it. That's why we say when we stand up before a church at a wedding ceremony, before God and all these witnesses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, it says one more time here, it says, A wife is bound as long as her husband is living, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to anyone she wants, only in the Lord. If death comes, then fine, you're free. That's its end in death. And then number three, it's sacredness. Just a little point about this. In Proverbs chapter 18, and verse 22, it says this. A man who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. He who finds a wife finds God's favor. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, way back in the beginning, it says these two should become. It's sacred. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that uh, an employee and his employer shall become one. Right? That's ludicrous. Nowhere in in Scripture does it say that uh, a renter and his landlord shall become one. 
See, marriage is so sacred that he says, I'm going to bring this male and this female together and they become one. That's sacred. That's the way God designed it. And men, can I say one more thing about this? According to 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, let me just read that real quickly. 1 Peter chapter 3 says, Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives with an understanding of their weaker nature, yet showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. In the same way, live with your wives with an understanding of their weaker nature. I've known a lot of strong women. You have too. Physically, emotionally, strong. Yet God says they're weaker than us. You need to be their protector. You need to be their provider. You need to stand up for them. There are certain things I will not let my wife do. She can do a lot. I've come home on occasion, maybe some of you men have as well, and you found that the whole entire house was turned around. First response is, why in the world did you change everything? I know where everything's at. But then all of a sudden it hits you, it's like, wait a minute, how did you move that? Never mind, they're going to be in bed the next three days. I don't know about some of your wives, but my wife is strong. But God's Word says they're weaker. If you've never read a book called Love is a Decision by Gary Small, you need to read it. Within that book, he talks about the the physical DNA difference between a man and a woman. And some of you guys, you need to understand that. And maybe they would encourage you to take some of the pressure off. God made us different. But he says one key phrase here. Showing them honor. The word honor literally means value. Worth. They have value. They have worth. Some of you guys don't attribute much value, much worth to your wives. And as a result, he says, so that your prayers will not be hindered. You wonder why God's not answering prayers? How's your relationship with your wife? Just putting it blunt. Is God not answering your prayers? You see, there's a reason why God doesn't always answer prayers. It's not always just because His answer is no. Sometimes He's saying, wait a minute, change your actions, start living obediently, and I'll start honoring your prayer requests. Sometimes it's because you don't honor your wives and your wives' relationship is terrible. It's a sacred relationship God has allowed us to be a part of. What does God's Word say about marriage? We're to complement. We're to fulfill our roles. Death is what separates it. And it's sacred. What about homosexuality? What does God's Word say about that? Well, I'm not going to go through every passage, but I want to just highlight a couple things. As we read about what God said about marriage in Genesis chapter 2, you'll notice over and over He says man and woman. Man and woman. Man and woman. They should become one flesh. Man and woman. Become one. Over and over and over again. 
And he says in Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, that God made a woman for the man. He did not make another man for a man. He made another woman for the man. There's several passages I want to look at. I don't have time to break every one of them apart. But let me give you just a couple of them. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, he gave a command. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Within a homosexual relationship, that cannot naturally happen. We understand that. In a homosexual relationship, man with man cannot procreate. Woman with woman cannot procreate. That is not God's design. It's not logical. It's illogical. God designed it to not happen that way. Like begets like. When man and woman come together, it works. Man and woman does not or man and man does not work. Woman and woman does not work. You say, well, we can adopt. Yes, anybody can adopt. And I encourage it. But God's design, God's perfect design, was man and woman becoming one to be fruitful and to multiply. In the Song of Solomon, encourage you sometimes, just read through it as a husband and wife. It's amazing how many times over and over the, the imagery and the picture that God gives to, in, in this relationship between a husband and wife is so clear. Nowhere do you find the imagery of a man loving another man. It's not in the imagery of anywhere in the book of Song of Solomon. Nowhere in the book of Song of Solomon does it talk about a woman loving a woman. And he's very clear about what those things are that they love about each other. And nowhere in any of it is there any hint of homosexuality. You say, well, if God was for it, why didn't He put it in there? Because He's not for it. Over and over, I've, I've, I've seen people twist and, and manipulate Scripture to say, well, here's a, here's a slight opening. No, there's no slight opening for this. In fact, in the Old Testament, I realize that I've said many times, we don't live in the Old Testament, but let's look at the record here. Turn your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 18. You want to know what God thinks about it? His opinion still has not changed. In Leviticus chapter 18, and verse 22, it says this, You are not to sleep with a man as with a woman. It is detestable. You are not to have sexual intercourse with any animal defiling yourself with it. A woman is not to present herself to an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. Over and over he says there is a design. Woman with man. And he said anything else other than that is detestable before God. Look over just a couple chapters here in chapter 20 and verse 13. Verse 13 says this, If a man sleeps with a man as with a woman, they have both committed a detestable thing, and they must be put to death. Their blood is on their own hands. What did God think about this? He despised it. He says, detestable. And just because we are not under Old Testament law doesn't mean His opinion has changed. Let me have you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Just for a few moments here. This is the passage that I have heard twisted and misconstrued a dozen times over the last five years. It cannot be any more clear than what God has laid it out in plain English. 
And let me just say before I begin to read this passage, I've known people in the last ten years who kind of in their mind says, well, you know, love is love. And, you know, I mean, you know, isn't God for love? Yes, God is for love, but God is not for homosexuality. God is a God of love. He said, demonstrate love. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, by your love for one another. God is absolutely a God of love. No question about that. Well, if God is a God for love, what about, what's the difference whether it's a man and a woman or a man with a man or a woman with a woman? The difference is that God did not design it that way. That's an unbiblical picture of what marriage is to be about. And here's, here's where it gets a little bit fuzzy at times. Well, I know so-and-so, and they're a good friend of mine, and they're in a kind of a homosexual relationship. You know I mean? It's not so bad. Yes, it is. Because it's unbiblical. And our emotions should not determine how we decide whether or not something is right or wrong. Emotions has nothing to do with it. Principle does. In Romans chapter 1, I want to begin reading down to verse uh, 18. It says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people, who by their unrighteous suppress, righteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, that is, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through uh, that what He has made. As a result, people are without excuse. He says, you look around creation, that gives you evidence, strong evidence, that there is a Creator who has designed all of this. And with the design comes order. And He says later in 1 Corinthians 14, let all things be done decently and in order. So there is order to the universe in which God has us. And let me just say before I read this, homosexuality is just one sin amongst the list of many sins that God is not for. Can't highlight one to the exclusion of the other. So he says here, verse 21, For though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore God delivered them over in their cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. This is a passage I've heard a hundred times. Well, God is not talking about homosexuality here. He's talking about all these other things. In the list of all these things, He says homosexuality is wrong because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. God was very clear on what truth was. Since they worshiped and served something created instead of the Creator who is praised forever. And He says, verse 26, This is why God delivered them over to degrading passions, For even their females exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The males in the same way also left natural relations with females and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Males committed shameless acts with males and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty for their error. And look at verse 28. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a worthless mind to do what is morally wrong. They're filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, wickedness. They're full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. 
They're gossip, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boasters, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, and the list goes on and on. It says they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Is that in our culture or what? All over, screams out in our, in our culture that we live in. Says God says, fine, you're going to do this, you're going to suffer the consequences of your choices. And if you look at what goes on in the world today, you can, you can do a Google search and you find out that diseases amongst homosexual partners are 5,000% greater than non-homosexual partners. You say, well, what, what's, what's the reason for that? It's unnatural. It's unnatural. God did not design it that way. And when you do something outside of God's parameters, outside of God's design and model, there's problems. You see, God designed it to work between a husband and a wife. Think of the physical pieces that God gave man and woman. One fits inside the other. Any other way, it does not work. It's not normal. It's illogical. One other area I want to talk about just in a few moments. You say, well, Pastor, I'm in a great marriage. Wonderful. Praise God for that. So I, 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 don't, I don't really deal with homosexuals a whole lot, but you know this clears things up for me. Great. But what about sometimes we, we hear of, of, of people living together even though they're not married? What's, what's the problem with that? God talks about that as well. It seems like it's such a normal part of our culture that we live in. How many sitcoms are on TV that talk about people living together? How many times do we hear in a given week where so-and-so is moving in with so-and-so because, well, it's cheaper than her having her apartment and him having his apartment. But it just makes sense that we're in. We're going to get married anyway. What does God's Word say about that? It doesn't matter what culture says. What does God's Word say about it? Can I just say this? In Genesis chapter 3, Satan loves nothing more than to destroy relationships. He would love for us to make it a habit to obey our desires more than it is than to obey God. We see that right away in Genesis chapter 3. You know the story. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? I mean, Satan loves for us to question what God has made clear. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the free, uh, fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. Satan would love nothing more than for us to come to the mindset that it's okay to obey my desires. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 says, Flee sexual immorality. Immorality is being involved in trying to gratify sexual desires outside of marriage. And can I just say this? In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, you've heard the phrase before, it's better to marry than to burn in your desires and passions one for another. It's better to marry than to live together 
outside of the marriage vows. But let me turn one more passage, Hebrews chapter 13. I don't know if it's still the statistic, but it was a few years back. I haven't looked to see if the, pa- the statistic is still the same. But the, the, the statistic that used to be current was that people who live together before they are married are two times more likely to divorce than people who don't live together before marriage. I don't know if that statistic has changed. It used to be the norm a few years back. But Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says this. Marriage must be respected by all and the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge immoral people and adulterers. And I ask this question every time I perform a wedding ceremony. So are you living together? Oh, you are. Are you sleeping together? Okay. Are you having sex together before you're married? Read the verse. So, Pastor, that's none of your business. You're right. But you came to me and asked me to marry you. So I'm asking you the question. If you are living together, sleeping together, having sex together before you are married, what kind of a bed is this? It's a defiled bed. Because marriage is honorable honorable in all, and the bed is only undefiled in marriage. That's God's design. That's That's what He planned it. And so you say, well, does that mean you won't marry us? No. But what it does mean is we have some decisions to make before you get married. Are we going to continue in sin and expect God to bless it? Or are we saying, God, you're right, I'm going to repent of this action and I'm not going to do it anymore. We're going to do what's right. That's the key test of our obedience to God. See, those passions are strong. Um... God did not design, men, for you to have a GTO with a was punching out 700 horsepower, but just to leave it in park. The fuel for that GTO? Yeah, she's sitting right beside you. But the two don't come together until you own it. I can see that car sitting in the parking lot over there at Wegmans and the drive-in and say, well, that's neat. And I know that that motor will run. But it's not my motor. It's not my car. And only when I receive that gift can I just take it and run with it. That's the way God designed it. In conclusion, what if I've sinned? What if I don't have a marriage that is honorable before God? What if I haven't had the right perspective about homosexuality? What if I haven't had the right view of God's design of not living together, sleeping together, having sex together before marriage? What if that is not the case? Can I just say this according to 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says this, My little children, am I writing to you these writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He Himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Can I just say this? Through His forgiveness. 
It is better to ask God for forgiveness and to repent of that sin than to continue in arrogance or even in, in, in uh, ignorance than to, 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 to just keep doing what I'm doing and say, God, I don't care about your blessings. I don't care about what you think. I'm going to do my own thing. There is forgiveness. And we have the ability to repent. And God says in 1 John chapter 1, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is forgiveness. And I'm thankful for that. Because if we didn't have God's forgiveness, where would any of us be? And secondly, according to Proverbs chapter 28, in verse 13 it says this, The one who conceals his sins will not prosper, but whosoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. You can't hide it. There are so many things that we can hide from our fellow man, but you cannot hide our sin before God. All things are naked and open before God with whom we have to do. It says in Psalm 139, there is no place you can go to hide from the presence of God. Nowhere. So we can't conceal it. And Proverbs reminds us that he that conceals a sin will not prosper. You want God's blessing, then do what's right. And then I love this in Joel chapter 2. I won't take the time to turn there because of time. In Joel chapter 2, it says that God will restore what sin has sought to destroy. I say, man, I, I haven't had a good picture of marriage start today. You say, I haven't had, you know, I've got friends who are, are in the homosexual movement, or I have you know, kind of a sympathy or an empathy towards maybe some family members who are involved with it. Or maybe say, well, man, I, I, I live together. We are involved, sexually involved, and, and, and I don't know what to do about that. God will restore what sin seeks to destroy. And I'm thankful for that. I'm glad that I serve a God who is a God of second chances and third and fourth and fifth and 27th and 300s and you get the point. But see, the forgiveness only comes after the repentance. You don't get the forgiveness without the repentance. You've got to switch and do it right. That's the design. If we confess, He is faithful just to forgive. But there's no time to start like the present. God, forgive me. I did it wrong. Confess it. Let's get God's grace and mercy and move forward. I want to close with this. There's an article written by a man by the name of Joe Carter. Um, He's one of the writers for the Gospel Coalition. Why are behaviors the Bible condemns considered morally acceptable by Christians? Um, This is a new Gallup poll that just took uh, in the last couple years. And basically what they did is they went back 15 years to the present to see how different areas of culture has shifted. Um, sex between unmarried man and woman went up 15% in 15 years. Um, stem cell attained from human embryos went up 12%. Uh, gay and lesbian relationships are up 23%. Having a baby outside of marriage is up 16%. Doctor-assisted suicide is up nearly 10%. Abortion is up, not as much, but still is present up 5%. Um, Pornography is up significantly. Suicide is up 6%. Polygamy is up 9%. 
married and women, men and women having an affair is up. You say, why does this matter? A majority of Americans now believe that fornication between adults, homosexual behavior, having a child outside of marriage, doctor assisted killing, killing of humans in the earliest stages of development to be morally acceptable. If the current trends continue in 20 years, more than one in four Americans will also consider polygamy and suicide to be morally acceptable. Um, just goes on to say this. If we continue the trend that we're going, all these things will continue to go further from biblical principle and land in the lap of opinion and preference. It's time for us to quit basing our decisions, our thoughts, what we think is right or wrong, off feeling or emotion and not into God's Word. If we start doing this even further, we're going to see our country is even going to go down the moral toilet even more. We've got to start standing on what we know is truth. You say, well, I'm not involved in any of these things. No, but you live in a world that is, and we need to pray for them. You need to pray for them. God's Word is very clear. Is that in the Bible? You saw that it is. Did God really say that? You saw that He did. And we have ground to stand on. It's biblical ground. It's unshaking ground. And we need to stand on it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You once again for Your Word. We thank You that it is true. We thank You that it's unchanging. We thank You that it is solid ground that we can stand on.